Hey there, and welcome to the Classical Liberal Project. My name is Danielle. I'm here with Jonathan Casey, chair, chair of the Classical Liberal Caucus, and uh, Mike Chermott, you are running for the LP nomination for president, yeah? That is true. And Danielle, thank you for setting this up, and thank you so much for having me on. It's a real joy to be with you uh, in the projects. Yeah. Oh. Thanks for coming. So what, what, what got you? you what got you started? Uh, what made you... what you know, got your interest started in running for president. It's a big task. It's a lot of what's, work. What's all this about? What what the heck is going on here? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel very strongly that the type of campaign that, that we're running, that we're interested in running and that we're pursuing very, very hard is the kind of campaign that we need to push the Libertarian Party toward, which is to say a very policy forward campaign the kind of campaign that is run with a great deal of professionalism. We already have a, a great team on board. We have, uh, I guess, 11 team members right now that are paid, uh, paid lightly, right? Um, very professional team. Uh, policy forward, by that I mean, I think it's important that we differentiate ourselves very, very hard, very, very clearly from the Republicans and the Democrats on the other side of the nomination. And I believe that the best way to do that is by policy and policy that's very adherent to our principles, policy that cleaves a hard edge against Democrats and Republicans. I think it's very, very important that we not try to make some of the same mistakes that I believe that we've made in past cycles, which is to say, attempt to find common ground with Republican and Democratic politicians. I believe our job is to find common ground with Republican and Democratic voters and I do believe that most Americans have a libertarian streak, uh, a libertarian leaning. Uh, at the very least, the vast majority of Americans have an appreciation for the Constitution. And I believe that we need to be the party that leads our way back in the fight back toward the Constitution. And in that sense, I think we have a great opportunity in 2024. But I do believe that we need to run the right kind of campaign to take advantage of that opportunity. So we're running a campaign that's not only policy forward, but uh, is run with a lot of credibility. Of course, my personal background is in public service and public policy, both as an economist and a police officer. So although we're putting out uh, a, a policy agenda that's uh, fairly crisp, uh, fairly edgy, uh, we back it up with real world solutions, uh, with uh, plans. We understand what it will take to get done some of the, the moves to which we aspire. And I think that that'll differentiate us from other campaigns as well, both inside and outside of the party. So we're in it because we think there's an obligation. Um, you brought up, you know, differentiating us from the two other parties and really speaking to the the voters, right? What what are some ways that you think that that you can connect with with people on both sides, or like what are some issues that you're communicating to them, and how are you communicating them differently? I think that Americans are ready to hear, for example, a very uh, clear anti-war message. I think that Americans are ready to hear an acknowledgement that a lot of our problems are based in bad decisions in public policy. For example, our economy doesn't look all that different from the way it looked in the 70s and 80s. But there's a growing recognition on the part of most Americans that a lot of our problems are driven by public policy, that Inflation, for example, doesn't just fall off of a tree. That we have an institutional problem in the Federal Reserve System, the way that we conduct monetary policy, and that there are things that we can do about that. We don't need to just shrug our shoulders and throw our hands up. 
but there are real solutions out there, but they require some fairly energetic reforms, uh, some fairly institutional level reforms. And I don't think the American public is used to getting that from Republicans and Democrats, and that will separate us from, from those parties. And not just in terms of monetary policy, but fiscal policy uh, generally, economic policy generally. So I think that the American public is ready to hear that. It is what we've been communicating hard. And we communicate it in a way that commits us to it early. For example, one of the ways that we commit to it early is our platform we branded, right? We call it the Gold New Deal and it's got its own website, right? And we feel like that's real important because we want people to understand that this is not something that we're just tossing out there for some fixed period of time. Uh, this is not just up until the nomination or it's, it's, it's not something that, you know, we can uh, fundamentally change going through the nomination process and roll out something else on the other side. This is something that we're committed to. You know, I don't think uh, you'll find too many other candidates. To be honest, at the moment, I can't remember any other candidates uh, in any party that will commit to a platform so hard that they'll separately brand it and give it its own URL. And I believe that that's important. I think that it's important for Americans to see that we're committed to a pool of principles that can bring certain types of solutions. But they do require, uh, as I said, some fairly energetic reforms. So the president obviously is limited and what it's, you know, power of the scope of what its office it can actually accomplish. But what, what are some Not things that the president... what a lot of recent politicians right, would... Exactly, uh, exactly. Right, exactly, exactly. And clearly, as president, you'd be probably, you would certainly follow the Constitution and the role of a presidency far better than we've seen in a very long time. But right. what could the presidency do about the, the Fed, about these things? If they didn't have Congress or the Senate on their side, what, is, what are some of the things that the president could do? It is challenging. And no, we're not going to have control of uh, the House or the Senate anytime soon, much less the judiciary, right? Uh, different examples have different techniques and, and different tactics that have to go along with that overall strategy. So, for example, the Federal Reserve System, and I don't want to burn up your entire podcast on it, but real quick, for example, and, and people who have spent as much time in Washington as I have know that the only way you can get rid of an agency or even a function, much less an entire agency, much less something as politically powerful as the Federal Reserve System. It takes marginalizing it. It takes winnowing it down. It takes making it smaller and less robust before you can actually move legislation to get rid of it in its entirety. So, for example, in the case of the Fed, you would have to replace uh, the leadership with individuals who are committed to running a monetary policy that is rules-based as opposed to a discretionary system like we've had the past nearly 100 years now that is designed to lean against recessionary pressure and inflationary pressure. Instead, you would appoint individuals who are committed to a rules-based system so that the public could see that it works, uh, that it's not something that you need to fear, so that when it does come time to move legislation to end the Fed, people would be warm to the idea uh, this is not something that's huge and catastrophic. We're just getting rid of the Federal Reserve System because it was designed to exert discretion. And rather, we're just going to transfer monetary policy to, say, the Treasury Department and impose a rules-based system. And in that sense, you would break up the rest of the Federal Reserve System and its components, which is to say its regulatory function. You would make that completely optional. 
you would uh, take the Fed's balance sheet, transfer that to the Treasury Department, make it subject to legislation, which, of course, is no silver bullet because the legislature can always do stupid things, too. But at least you would get rid of the the midnight, totally discretionary bailouts. And uh, the most recent problem with the Fed you could stop, which is to say uh, the, the issuance of central bank digital currency which is a, a huge potential problem, not only the privacy concerns that we've all talked about, but one of the things that, that I worry very much about is the issuance of a, a digital currency from the Fed that would bias the way these markets develop, because we're about to hit a, an important inflection point in terms of the development of our smart economy. Contracts are going to be running on blockchain technology, for example, and we're going to need currencies that run on blockchain technology. And predicting exactly how those markets need to develop is tricky. You don't want them to be biased by the existence of a Fed currency that the Fed would naturally uh, bias uh, in its favor with regulatory actions against other currencies. So for all these reasons, it's important we get rid of that. And and there's different techniques you would use for other agencies. Uh, The Defense Department, for example, uh, you would declare upfront and early as a matter of principle that we're not going to be engaging in military intervention without a declaration of war. And we're going to make that declaration of war subject to the approval of states. That's not something that requires uh, moving legislation, right? If you're the commander in chief, you have the ability to slow it down and you have the ability to tell people what it is that's that's going to cause that slowdown. Right. You can also begin the process of bringing back foreign bases Uh, You can begin the process of exiting NATO, for example. Uh, I don't believe that NATO has been in our interest for some time. I believe that that's the kind of thing that can be articulated fairly early in the process. Uh, Some of those conversations are not television ready, but they're certainly phone call ready, as I say. You can start calling the heads of state of European nations on day two and giving them the heads up. This, this is your 18-month warning, right? Right. Uh, to the extent to which you're paranoid about the Russians, now is the time for you to pick up the slack. And I wouldn't be paranoid about the Russians, but you do you, right? If you're really worried about it, here's your wake-up call that you need to start spending 3% of your GDP on, on military defense, if that's your big concern, because we're not going to be your backstop anymore. And of course, it's not too, it's never too early to articulate a clear policy with regard to Taiwan. I believe that a lot of the problems that we have feeling obligated to back up Taiwan, as I believe the Democratic administration does, is our our own making. We have stepped into a a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that we have intimated to any number of companies, you're safe investing in Taiwan, even strategic assets that the United States economy depends on, because we'll be there to back you up if you know, if, if unification comes at the point of a gun. And now that these investments have been made, people are using that as an excuse to advance uh, a position of, of having to defend Taiwan. So the sooner that, that we begin articulating those principles, the better. And that sort of thing can be done right away. I hope those are a couple of examples. No, I like those. I, I think that's good. Let's, well, let's talk about foreign policy for example, you mentioned a few things, getting out of NATO, uh, we're bringing our military bases home. What other step, like, where do you see the line? Do we need any defensive contracts with other with other nations? Should we ally with Canada? Where, where do you see the role for military alliances around the world? Should we have any at all? 
I that is an excellent question, by the way, um, because I think that that is exactly the right question. In other words, I believe it's a bottom up approach, not a top down approach. Um, I believe the answer is quite possibly yes. Uh, I, I don't feel like as a matter of principle, we should not be in any alliances ever, no matter what, come hell or high water. Uh, but having said that, the alliances in which we're engaged do seem uh, either slightly dopey or way over the top, NATO being the latter, right? For example, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to have military alliances, arrangements, maybe is a better word, in the Pacific, such that you're not committed to going to war for somebody over any particular situation, but that you're used to engaging in common defense patterns so that should the need arise, it's a much more comfortable situation, but more importantly, you've sent the signal that you're ready for weird things to happen. And of course, that is supposed to be a, a, a defense posture of strength. And I believe that politically speaking, uh, none of us really like to mix politics and policy, but, but it matters. So let me just get this out in the open. As a political matter, I believe that the American public will be more comfortable with the types of cuts and pullbacks in foreign bases and the types of cuts to the Defense Department that we would be talking about. I believe that they would be more comfortable knowing that we had not abandoned the strategic uh, alliances that acknowledge that the world can be a dangerous place. I don't think at the moment there's any reason to believe that there's anyone out there that actually wants to attack the United States. I think that the people that fear that are either fear mongering, they're either lying to you or they're silly. Right. I think those are the two categories. I, I don't mean to sound completely glib, right? Because right, a lot right. of these people are very serious and well-meaning and good faith actors, but uh, I would just characterize them as wrong. So you would, but, so if, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think the politically there's a case to be made for making the American public comfortable on the exit ramp from having a military that's so powerful, you could win a war with the rest of the world two times over. Right, right. That's right. Point. So to sum up, kind of, if I could sum up your position, it's basically look at the look at what's going on in the world and make decisions based on that. And that puts us in the driver's seat of what wars we do or do not get into. Uh, so, like, take take a look, like during the Soviet Union, it made perfect sense to have an alliance with Canada and put up radar towers across their northern border because it def- it also defended us. Right. So, right. That's, that's an excellent what example, particularly if you're paranoid, as we were. And in, in, in our defense. <laughs> In, in defense of the American public, <laughs> right. we were paranoid, right? And uh, that's just, that, that is a piece of reality that you need to deal with. Would you pull troops out of South Korea, for example? Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is not to say that you would abandon any notion of having a defense alliance, right? But I don't think you need the forward deployment of troops the way that we do in South Korea. Gotcha. Uh, and and I don't think that that necessarily means you have to do it on day one. Like I said, you know, you give the phone call that says this is the direction we're going. And in that sense, it's very important to articulate principles up front. I, I think that this idea that the United States has pursued of strategic ambiguity, particularly with regard to Taiwan, I think it's a mistake. It's just 
it's a mistake. There is no such thing as a relationship. I'm open if you have a counterexample, but I believe that there's probably no uh, such thing as a relationship that benefits from ambiguity. Whether that's in your personal life or dealing with uh, foreign leaders or or in any other kind of relationship. Well, it always seems to lead to some kind of chess game that you're you're making this move, they're making that move, and it's just you know they're flying jets by your jets, you, they're they're sailing ships by, right by your ships. So it's just this whole mind game that they end up playing instead of it having gets just dangerous. clear lines. Right, it right. gets very dangerous and, and can escalate things. Well, that's right. And if you're committed to not going to war, and I don't think you can actually say at this point that the American uh, strategic communication, let's call it has sufficiently articulated that we're committed to not going to war. If you if you were out there articulating that message, you wouldn't say things like, yes, we will defend Taiwan with, with American troops on the ground, as, as President Biden has four times. And yes, I'm sensitive to the argument that he probably doesn't remember the first three times. So in fairness, he probably thinks he's only said it once. But once is probably too many if you don't mean it. I also think once is too many because you shouldn't mean it. I don't think it's the United States interest to be involved with what everybody acknowledges is a civil war. There is no one who doesn't acknowledge that it's a civil war. Now, there was an alternative strategy, and that ship has sailed. You know, you could have said, we're not going to pursue a one China policy. The time to say that was 60 years ago, right? You could have 75 years ago. Time flies. Something like uh, that. Yeah. You could have said, no, we define nations by their ability to defend themselves and by their ability to govern themselves, uh, by their ability to govern their borders and make policy decisions on their own and engage with trade with us. That's how we define a nation. Taiwan looks like a nation, so our policy is to recognize them as such, put an ambassador there, right? Invite an ambassador to Washington and treat them like a nation. Now, although I think that that was probably the right policy that we did not pursue, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need a strategic alliance that says, on the other hand, if you get invaded, we'll go to war with you. You know, one does not follow the other. There are plenty of, of nations in the world that we recognize as nations that we should not be committed to defending. I would actually ar argue all of them, right? And, and Taiwan probably should have fit into that same category with all the others. How do you feel about the uh, Defend the Guard legislation? I know that's important to a lot of folks. It is important. I think it's wonderful. Uh, indeed, uh, I enjoyed talking to uh, Tara Fisher about it, who is the New Jersey uh, Defend the Guard uh, person. She's she's on our team, about which I'm very proud. I should brag about that all the time. I'm a big Tara Fisher fan. But having said that, uh, Defend the Guard is a is a marvelous marvelous innovation. Um, I should lie to you and say I thought of it all by myself and started moving the legislation, but you would know that that's not true. I, I think in principle, it's terrific. I think as a matter of politics, it's a terrific vehicle, vehicle to get that message out. And it reminds people that the system we have now does not require uh, states to approve of military intervention. 
And it's worth reminding people that your government can, and oh, by the way, we haven't talked about Ukraine, does go to war without you being on board and then tries to sell it on CNN. Well, and good for them for trying to sell it, right? I guess it's better than not trying to sell it. But, you know, this idea of going to war, and, and we should be clear about this, we are at war. Um, I, I think we've probably crossed the dotted line from proxy war to sort of real war-ish at this point. The President of the United States has been there. We have, what, a, a thousand troops there at this point? Uh, we've spent well over $100 billion. We're working on our second $100 billion. We're producing stuff in real time just for that war. It is not true that we're only sending, you know, last generation's Jeeps out behind the barracks that nobody knows what else to do with. That's not true. It may have started out to be true in the beginning, but at this point, we're, we're producing as quickly as we can um, munitions and equipment. Uh, to go to that war in particular, that sounds a lot like a war to me. That sounds a, a lot like a war to me. And I think it, it, that the Defend the Guard uh, movement, legislation movement, is an excellent vehicle for reminding people that your government goes to war without your approval. All over the place, too. And all over the I place. Mean, it's all over the place. I mean, <clears throat> in, our... in places that a lot of the American public had never even heard of or yeah. couldn't find on a map, right? Yeah. And so I don't what's mean your... that is an indictment of our education right. system, which is probably something else worth indicting. But very true, very true. What's your uh, since we're I'll try to wrap it up on foreign policy. But what's your position on immigration? How are you? What's your personal position, and then what position are you using uh, for your campaign? Kind of how are you? What are you selling to the American populace? Thanks. Uh, I do believe we need a much more pro-immigration policy. I also believe, having spent a couple of days down at the border last fall, that we need a much more pro-immigrant policy, if I can say it as, yeah. as such. One of the problems that, shame on me for having underappreciation for this problem until spending two days down there, right? Uh, I met with local law enforcement. I met with uh, Customs and Border Patrol. Met with ranchers who have property on the border and of course, met with a lot of libertarians down there and leaders in the area. And one of the things that only then did I fully appreciate was the, the scale of the human trafficking problem, the effects of what we have created there in terms of a black market. You know, we often talk about the black market, especially having been in law enforcement myself, we spent a lot of time talking about the black market that we create through the war on drugs. Anytime that you criminalize something or make something illegal one way or another, that the culture is not ready to give up. That's where black markets come from, right? And black markets are dangerous, full stop. And not just a little dangerous, they're very dangerous. And one of the things that you see at the border is how dangerous it is with, of course, these people who we call coyotes most of the time, bringing people to the border, and then they communicate with someone on the other side and someone on the other side and takes these people into, a, into the interior of the United States and so often pursue a life of indentured servitude and worse uh, that we don't need to get into in your family-friendly show. It's a horrific situation and one that we have created through bad public policy. And that is something that our government needs to own. 
So however you feel about immigration policy, and I believe that we need to be much more pro-immigration, but however you feel about it, there is no argument to be made that the system that we have now doesn't suck. By creating this black market and not doing anything about it, we are putting literally millions of people in harm's way in a way that they would not be otherwise. So uh, as you might imagine, I'm no fan, I know you're not either, of federal government resources being used for almost anything, right? But I do believe if there's, if there's any place where we need a surge of government resources, it's at that border. When I worked for the White House, we could vet somebody in in 90 minutes. Let that sink in. From a cold start, like someone comes to the door, it would we could get them inside in 90 minutes. Think about that. And now think about the border. Well, right? I know that in India has 90-year wait times to get to the United States to get a work visa. 90, 90 years? Yes, it, or it's like 60 to 90 years. It is an insane, yeah. like that's, they, they have uh, it's uh, dopey. limits. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's dopey. It's dopey. There, and there's no reason for it. Look, immigration is good for the United States. That is the truth. And not only is it good for the United States, it is in the most American of ways good for the United States. Right. I truly believe that it is one of the defining possibly the defining characteristics of the United States. One of the reasons that we have had a history of at least pursuing a pluralistic democracy, at least pursuing a tolerant society is because of our history of immigration. That's where our backbone of tolerance comes from, right? right. And for this reason, I think that it's very, very important culturally. I think it's important economically. I think it's the right foreign policy, by the way, which is a different animal. And I think it's the right way to hold our government accountable to the human rights that, that we purport to, to want to protect and to honor. And so I honestly feel as though, how do I say this? If, if, if you want to come in the United States, and by the way, if you don't want to come in the United States, why not? Like, what is, what are we not sufficiently communicating that you don't want to move to the United States, right? I, I got to say, why not? If, if I were the executive in the White House, I would be actively recruiting. Like, you should be coming here. There is no, there is no argument that says the United States is better off with a population of 340 million instead of 440 million. Right. That, is, that is not a thing. Right. That's not a thing. If you want to come to the United States and you believe in a tolerant, classically liberal, if I can use that term with you, style of government, of delimited powers, uh, a pluralistic democracy. If you want to live your life to your own standards and you're willing to work your ass off for it, then in some sense, you're already an American. You just haven't checked in yet, right? but we'll leave the light on for you. There you and go. I think that those are the kinds of people that, that we want, but it means putting the resources in terms of humans and technology at the border to vet them in quickly. Uh, I don't think our society is quite there yet with the style of open border that says we don't need to vet. 
And I appreciate that as a political matter. I, I do appreciate that. I'm sensitive to that argument. But having said that, that doesn't need to be that big a deal. You know, if you're not if you're not on a list, if, if we can't, you know, the default should be you're coming in. Right. And by the way, you should work. This idea of letting people in and telling them that you can't work yet. Uh, what's the technical term? That's bass backwards. It seems to me that we'd, have, we'd be better off with a policy that says you have to work. Like, I'm going to call you in a week. I want to make sure you have a job, right? right? We, we have something like 10 million jobs uh, that are unfilled right now. And we should not be in the business of letting people in who can't work. Right. Or, and not letting them work who don't want to work, by the way. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with wealthy people as a matter of principle. Like, if you just, you know, we should let billionaires in too, I suppose. But in general, we should be bringing in people and telling them, yes, you have permission to work. Get to it. Yeah. And I think that we're backwards uh, in that sense. So, you know, maybe uh, some of the resources we're saving in in shrinking down the Defense Department can be dedicated to the border. Maybe that's where retired officers can go. There you go. (laughs) Nice. So, yeah, you mentioned you're a police officer kind of, you know, that's. A unique aspect for a presidential candidate, certainly. I can't think of uh, of, of another LP presidential candidate that's come from that background. What? How does that influence your? It's a weird thing, Jonathan. Yeah, there you go. All right, and I want to know how that influences your views on drug policy specifically as well. Yeah, um, I think like a lot of officers, I've had it with uh, the war on drugs from an empirical standpoint. As an ethical standpoint, I was there before I became a cop, right? I was a registered libertarian around the time I became a police officer. In the 90s, a buddy of mine accused me of being a libertarian, and I clearly remember saying to him, I don't say mean things to you. Why would you say such a horrible thing to me, right? When we were back in the early 90s, good red-blooded registered Republicans, still thinking that the party would make some positive contribution to physical fiscal conservatism and and subsequently being uber disappointed. But all that behind us, I've never been a fan of the war on drugs, but as an empirical matter, being a police officer teaches you that it doesn't work, however you might feel about the ethics. And I think that we should all agree, uh, certainly anyone who can hear my voice, I hope would agree, that even if it did work, the government doesn't have the ethical authority, the moral authority, the right, right, to tell us what we can and cannot do with our bodies, even if the war on drugs, in some sense, was a positive program that made everyone's life better. As silly as that seems right now. But it doesn't work. And I think most police officers, I don't actually have data to back this up, so that might be a little aggressive saying most. A lot of police officers recognize that it that it doesn't work. You know, there's a certain frustration that that comes there. As you might imagine, most police officers are registered Republicans, at least, again, that's my anecdotal observation. But most have a libertarian streak. Um, you know, we're all fans of being mad at our employer, right? Frustrated by, I mean, who doesn't love to be mad at their boss? When you're a police officer, that takes the form of, oh, you can't believe the stupid thing the legislature wants us to do now right? Or the stupid thing the city wants us to do now. I remember when the city got it in its head that that we weren't in for we, the police department, we weren't uh, enforcing uh, 
uh, marijuana uh, prohibition, right? And the, the city uh, outside of the police department decided that they wanted us to issue civil citations that instead of pretending it was a criminal matter anymore, start issuing these civil citations. It'd be $100 for the first time you were found with weed and $200 for the second time and so on and so on. You get the pattern, right? And it occurred to us, and I'm very proud to say I was not the first one in the room to say something. There were registered Republicans in that roll call one morning when the nice lady from City Hall was, was explaining this program to us. There were registered Republicans in that room who said, again, you're a family-friendly show. Let me say they said, uh, no, uh, we're not interested. It's extortion. What you're saying is you want us to go up to people and say, we won't prosecute you criminally if you give us money. Like if anyone else did that, you would be a felony, yeah. right? right? And that's what you want us to communicate to these people. And she basically had some version of, yeah, you know, it was kind of, you know, and it just didn't happen. You know, I was very proud of the, the guys and gals that I worked with in that sense, because it was a great example of the discretion that police officers have being used for a, a good purpose. And I don't need to tell you that it's not always that way. Right. There are plenty of opportunities for police officers to use that discretion to make mistakes. And it happens all too often, which is part of the reason why it's really important that we change the way that we manage police officers, which is a, a different uh, topic, but one that I spent a lot of time and energy on. Well, I, that would be a great topic to get into. What what would you as a as president, what policies, what you know, would you use the bully pulpit? What things would you try to get done the, to hold police officers accountable, criminal justice reform? Yeah. And it. well, you do have to use the bully pulpit because you don't have much control over law enforcement as the president. Right. And we do need to sunset the FBI, which is another example of an agency that you have to winnow down by replacing the leadership and then breaking it into pieces and then getting right. rid of it. It's a multi-step process, but it can be done. And the FBI is an interesting example because even though it's changed leadership over the years, how many times it remains problematic, to say the least. That's, yeah. that's soft peddling it, I think, to call it problematic. It's an institutional level problem, so it has to go. And it's also interesting you use the phrase bully pulpit because it just occurred to me when you said uh, presidents in the past haven't had a police background, but Teddy Roosevelt, who did call it the bully pulpit. There you go. Was uh, the commissioner in New York City? Right. Yeah, I remember, re I remember that. Uh, I may have that slightly wrong. A historian in your audience will call me out and, and, and fix that. But I think that's what his role was. Email me. Okay. There you go. Email Danielle. Okay. Um, but having said that, yes, the president can push debates in the right direction. And the direction that debate has to go is one in which we acknowledge that we need to bring market forces to bear on the business of policing, that we want policing to be more like other industries. We want people to be held accountable. We want there to be transparency. We also want the best officers to be paid more, the mediocre officers to be paid less, and the crappy officers to be fired. Unions get in the way of that, right? They typically preclude officers from being evaluated in a way that ties to their compensation or that ties to promotional opportunities and, and accountability and, and things like that. And you would hope in a perfect world 
speaking of things that are going to sound silly as a libertarian, you would hope in a perfect world that local politicians would do a better job of holding police departments accountable. And that's what we want, right? We want right. local politicians to do a better job of getting police departments to align with the values of the community. We want politicians. I can't believe I'm even saying this because it does sound silly, but in a perfect world, you would want your, your mayor, uh, the uh, mayor or commissioner of your county to pressure departments and, and, and departmental leadership toward a way in which you would be able to hold people accountable. You'd want these people to be in, you would want your leaders to be more involved in hiring and training. I think most politicians would be shocked to learn what goes into training police officers to the extent to which violence is, is the core around which so much else revolves. The extent to which the number one objective, and we hear this all the time, the number one objective is for me to go home safe at night. And I'm not suggesting that that's not an important objective, to be honest. But it can't be the objective. Right. Right. The objective has to be protecting the rights of your constituents. And I think that police officers that have been on the job appreciate that a lot more than their leadership, a lot more than than uh, than politicians, to be honest, which is weird. One of the weird things that I did not anticipate becoming a police officer, in addition to how much discretion there is. One thing I did not anticipate was the extent to which you fall in love with your community. It sounds kind of goofy, but you do. You start to take things personally. I mean, anyone who takes their job seriously is going to get involved one way or another, right? I mean, unless you're a complete jerk, which is not to say that there aren't such humans in the world. But the vast majority of people who become police officers, they start to take things very seriously. And they take personally, for example, the crime that's committed in, in a zone, in a neighborhood for which you, you are responsible. Police officers, by and large, are willing to be held accountable and want to do a good job, want it to be recognized as such, and want to have that impact the trajectory of their careers. And so I spent a lot of time talking about the need, for example, to sunset qualified immunity and replace it with a requirement for police officers to carry their own liability insurance. And the reason for that is, is twofold. One is the idea that you would have some impediment to citizens, to Americans, seeking redress in court when they feel like they've been wronged, I find un-American, yeah. right? right? I mean, it's just surgeons don't do that, right? You know, you cut off the wrong toe. You don't say, well, I didn't mean it. So suck it up. <laughs> right, right. Um, which is why they carry liability insurance. We call that malpractice insurance. And officers right. need to do the same thing. And they need to be on the hook for the premiums so that you feel the pinch. And so that uh, so that the, the market forces, that mechanism of pricing really matters. The other reason it's so important is because in light of the fact that politicians don't hold departments and officers accountable, a third party outside check on the system would be a good thing. Right. An insurance company that demands the transparency that unions are used to not giving. 
if you want insurance, you're going to have to provide a heck of a lot of information, everything from hiring and training records to performance and individual case management and supervisory, indeed, probably 360 evaluations, right? right? You're going to require a heck of a lot of information. And they're not going to put up with the, the BS that unions throw up as roadblocks. And this would be a very good thing. And just an example of bringing market forces to bear where they don't much exist right now. And the same thing, by the way, applies to teachers and teacher unions, right? We want market forces to be brought to bear there, both in the sense that we want institutions competing for the kids, for the families in the form of school choice, but also, and this is something that always shocks me, the extent to which teachers don't appreciate this, it wouldn't be a bad thing for institutions to be competing for the best teachers and right. to drive up teacher compensation yeah. a little bit, at least for the good teachers, right? Yeah. That would not be a bad thing, especially if you were a teacher. And I have all kinds of respect for teachers. I mean, there's no higher calling than putting up with the crap that you have to put <laughs> up with a lot of public schools these days. And the ones that are good at that deserve to have their services waged out in a competitive market. Yeah. So, you know, we want all these markets to be subject to market forces, I think. Absolutely. Oh, Mike, I only have one more question for you. You got anything else, Jonathan? Go for it, Danielle. Um, we talked about professionalism and your messaging and you've got your whole team built out. Um, well, not the so whole team, but we're, we're working on it. Okay. Okay. Um, but I know Lars has got a big team and Chase is very confident in his team. Uh, and I'm sure there are other folks who are also have teams who else is running just so we can shout them out. Okay, good. Uh, go <laughs> I, I don't know who else. I, those are the three that I know about right now. Those are the big three, big three ones right now. Okay. Um, how how would you integrate that? Say if you were president or or maybe you got the VP nomination, could you still work with someone else and their campaign strategy? How how are you planning to mesh things together? If I had to merge with another campaign, yeah, that, I mean you're going to have a VP if you win the nomination, right? But potentially, that person, yeah. right? If that person already had a team, mm -hmm. uh, how would we merge the teams together? Yeah. Well. Uh, first of all, I think you absolutely want to in the sense that the size, the size, scope, scale of the task on the other side of the nomination is quite daunting. Mm -hmm. It's quite huge. Right. And whether you merely raise only three million dollars as in the last cycle or whether you get a more reasonable number like, you know, 10 times that. You, you need a significant team. Not all of them need to be paid full time, but it is no exaggeration to say that you need uh, literally dozens of people who are committed uh, to riding out that six month period and don't have significant, you know, other than familial obligations, they can't have significant professional obligations outside of that. So you're talking about a significant pool of, of people. And yes, merging with another team would be glorious with the following caveats, which I believe is what you're really getting at. Mm -hmm. The caveats are that they have to believe mm -hmm. in what you and I were discussing half an hour ago, which is they have to believe in a campaign that's policy forward, that is principled, libertarian principled. You have to be able to go to, to see our 
our campaign at goldnewdeal.org. And that's my plug. Thank you. Uh, go to goldnewdeal.org. And you've got to be on board with the, I mean, for most libertarians, it's bread and butter. It's a little forward. It's a little edgy. It might be a little much for certain people, but for the vast majority of libertarians, it's, it's bread and butter, right? If you're on board with all that, then terrific. If you're on board with the idea that it's going to take a great deal of professionalism, that we don't say things for shock value, we back everything up. And if there's an opportunity to say something merely for shock value that we can't back up and articulate how that's going to get done, why it's going to get done, then it may not fit into our branding wheelhouse. And everyone has to be a little bit comfortable with, with that concept as well. So if, if you're willing to go there, if you're not interested in seeking common ground with Republicans and Democrats, right? If you're okay with probably getting our feelings hurt from time to time, right? There's going to be Republicans who call you stupid and Democrats who call you worse. If you're okay with that, then you're going to be welcome on the team. Absolutely. And I, I would offer the same advice to anyone who is considering becoming, you know, that vice presidential candidate. You have to be ready for all of that. By the way, I believe that uh, any number of libertarians are ready for that type of campaign. I don't think too many people at this point are interested in running a 2.0 version of what we had in 2020. And I say that not as a personal matter. Um, I actually like Joe Jorgensen um, for a variety of reasons. And I hope she knows that. I don't think she cares. We don't know each other well, right? I don't. It, it, I could have said the opposite and she wouldn't care. Um, but I don't mean anything personal. I just don't like the style of campaign that, that we were running. I don't think it was sufficiently differentiated. You have to be loud in your differentiation extremely early as a tactical matter because you need the snowball to begin early. There's no value in flaming out with a week to go. You, if you're going to flame out, you might as well do it in June, right? You need to stake your ground early and let supporters know where you're going and where you are. You need to raise that flag early because I do believe that most Americans have that libertarian streak and they need to be able to see you and find that. But you need to raise that flag so that people can find you. So that would be the style of campaign. And to the extent to which people are comfortable with that, they're going to be welcome. And I believe that's going to be most libertarians and a heck of a lot of Americans. Glad to hear it. I'll yeah. I'll end this I'll end this with one one easy question. All right, you could choose if you had to choose a vice presidential candidate out of any president in the United States history, except for George mm -hmm. Washington. I'm just going to say you can't pick him. Right. You choose one of a president uh, to be your yep. vice presidential running mate. Who yep. would it be? Yeah, uh, I got two answers. Number one is Bill Weld. Absolutely, uh, Bill Weld is my guy. There you go. Um, <laughs> Oh, no, wait, as a technical matter, I guess he didn't quite get elected, did he? Not quite, not quite. Okay, all right. My second choice is Dan Quayle because we look sufficiently alike that I could just pretend right. like I'm him from time to time. You could be your body double. Yeah, I could send him home and just say, all right, now I'm Dan, and what I have to say is this, right? There you go. Have you ever heard, by the way, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm stalling here because I don't know I have a great answer for you, but I'm still working on it, okay? <laughs> have you ever heard Donald Trump serve as his own PR guy? He does that all the time, doesn't he? 
Well, <laughs> I mean, that's his brand, isn't it? That's what I thought. It yeah. is his brand, but but he admits it openly now. Have you ever heard him pretending to be a guy named? Oh, yes, he did. He would take calls. John, I want to say maybe John. Yes, I remember that. He would call, he he would pretend, he would call, he would answer calls or make fake calls with a fake voice and pretend to be his PR guy. I remember you. Exactly. That That's what I'm going to do for VP. There we go. I'm going to make go. phone calls from the Oval Office and say, no, this isn't Mike Tremont. This is, you know, Bill Weld, my VP. And just, you know, shoot my mouth off. What do you think? There you it's go. a strategy. I, it sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. I like. I it. liked the body double idea. I'll go home and nap. You pretend to be me. There we go. I think oh. everyone wants to pretend they're you, Danielle. <laughs> Saying that we want to pretend to be you would not be interesting. There we go. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for coming on. I appreciate the appreciate oh my the goodness, time. Thank you. I'm so grateful for your time. You guys are uh, a lot of fun, and I hope we can do it again. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Have a good one. Thank you. Uh, you too. Have a good night. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks so much. Yeah. And if you have anything to say to us, you can email me at danielle.s at lpclc.org. See you next time, guys.